Good evening and welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. I'm Di Hope and it's my great pleasure to welcome you to this unique event, this golden hour with the peerless Alison Kennedy, <laughs> during which allegedly she will reveal what has never been revealed before. So please join me in giving her an extremely warm welcome. You're very kind, You're very kind. Awful lot of you. I'm in the wrong tent. Okay, well, yes, I don't know about revealing anything, but tonight is, is about touring, is about gigging, is about all of the process that we go through in order to end up being in this position. So I'm, um, it will sound as if I'm talking on behalf of all writers, but um, obviously most people are not as incredibly dysfunctional as me. Um, there, there shouldn't be any nasty shocks. There will be no swearing because it's written down and it was checked <laughs> for badness. So that's very good. So anyway, um, the initial thing about touring, obviously you have to travel, which is not my favorite thing. And when I was young, I'd always wanted to travel. I never wanted to be a writer, I wanted to travel. And I had all these daydreams about um, tramp steamers and meeting gentlemen in Panama hats in quaint quayside hotels <laughs> and people that looked like Humphrey Bogart. And uh, instead, I ended up doing the kind of travelling which writers do. Although, I mean, we're not actually... It's not compulsory. You can't earn a living unless you travel. But it's not compulsory. You're not forced. <laughs> Your publisher won't speak to you or indeed employ you anymore. But it is not compulsory. You can choose. So you end up having this insane life where you're expected to go to Australia and New Zealand and Canada and India and the US and Europe and... Nottingham. <laughs> Sorry if anybody's from Nottingham. We'll get to that bit. Um, so you're bouncing between, you know, these spasms of tender artistic isolation and bouncing about with the kind of travel schedule that you would expect to have if you were a drug mule. <laughs> and not even making that much money. And ideally, I would like to walk to all of my gigs. Um, but obviously, even Nottingham, that isn't really going to happen. Uh, I tr tried bicycling. I learned to bicycle when I was 27, accompanied by two very much older people running me round and round the park, pursued by a huge mob of very young children, <laughs> laughing. And then the two elderly people let me go, and I went straight into a wall and bit through my lip and gave myself concussion. So bicycles, not going to happen. Um, you could do the driving thing, but that's very unecological. And again, learn to drive late in life, and it's all about hazard perception, and hazard recognition, and hazard warning, and basically hazard <laughs> is the key word. Dogs, children, animals, other drivers, everything next to the road, everything that could be next to the road, all of the signs that could fall on your car. Don't get in your car, it's a hazard. And it's very bad for you. And if you get there and you've driven, you won't be able to park, so don't go so you can't drive. Um, did try going by train. Obviously, you can now go to Europe by train, which is lovely. I like doing that, except I tend to end up marooned in Brussels railway station round about midnight when there is nothing to eat. And there, there are vending machines, lovely vending machines, beautifully lit, so you can see the food that you can't get at because they don't work. <laughs> and there are people wandering around who plainly want to mug you for your kidneys. 
So that's out. Um, and obviously you have the air option about which we will not talk today because of yesterday. Um, but whether it's a good day to fly or a bad day to fly, you may well end up on an aeroplane anyway. And you also have the kind of luggage that writers have. Obviously, you have the lovely ensemble that you're going to wear for the evening. <laughs> which got lost. Um, so I can't do it anymore. I can't get dressed up. I can't pretend. Um, so you have your ensemble. But you, ha you, know, you have to have your laptop, because if it's not actually in your hand, it will break or be stolen, or something terrible will happen to your laptop the top. And you need the backup CD to save the information which will fall out of your laptop. And you need the backup CD for the backup CD. And you need the plug-in USB RAM that's a backup. And you need the memory stick backup to back up the backups that you left at home. And the ones that you buried in the garden and the ones that you gave to your bank manager. Not that your work is fantastically precious, just that you don't really want to lose it because it takes you a long time to make your work. Plus, you have the paper copy of your work, <laughs> which is very heavy. <laughs> but it's good to carry because if you're sitting on a train, you can, you can make little marks on it. But the little marks are irreplaceable because there is no backup for the little marks. <laughs> so you have to have the fire extinguisher in case the manuscript <laughs> catches fire because paper is very flammable. <laughs> Otherwise, you have to make a copy, and that means you have to carry a photocopier, and that would be... <laughs> that would become foolish. And you have the Swiss Army knife, except you can't now have the Swiss Army knife, but I, I have the little magnifying glass and the compass that you get with the Swiss Army knife, because you never know when you might need a magnifying glass and a compass. And it's very light. It's the only thing I have that's very light. Because obviously, because I'm carrying all of that, all of my luggage is fantastically weighty and not allowed on any form of transport that has any weight limit. So, given that you're on all these forms of transport which are appalling and you're carrying your own body weight, and I have a bad back. I didn't when I started, but now I do. <laughs> Why do you do it? Why do you travel? You know, why do we do this thing? We, you know, if anybody was honest, any of the people who are doing the other events, you know, by the third or the fourth hotel in the tour, you are wondering if you should close your head in the Corby trouser press before you go on. <laughs> or after. And you have not enough sleep, and you have not enough friends, and not enough food, and this does not make you cheerful. And genetically, I am, you know, not predisposed to be cheerful. Through all of the generations, my relatives have basically been extremely keen on topping themselves. It is, in fact, a wonder that I'm actually here. You know, if socioeconomic conditions were too hard, kill yourself. If you have existential trauma, kill yourself. If you run out of twiglets, kill yourself. If it rains, kill yourself. Um, and they came from Wales, so <laughs> very few of them still alive. Uh, Stress-related headache, which we get a lot of, kill yourself. And, you know, if you're thousands of miles away from home, on your birthday, trapped in a wet backpacker's hut full of giant wood lice, with a total stranger with whom you will have to do a reading in front of three weeping Tasmanians in a pub owned by several large people who very plainly want to kill you, that might make you a bit depressed. That was my 36th birthday. And I wasn't binging it up, I was actually playing it down. It was much worse than that. <laughs> so again, it's a wonder I'm here. And you know, hotels generally, bed and breakfasts, writers' accommodation, you know, we, we don't actually get, I mean, here, it's lovely. Here, it's you know, a fur-lined Fabergé egg I'm sleeping in, it's wonderful. 
Uh, <clears throat> I think everybody gets at least one. But generally, it's just a massive invitation to self-harm. At the cheaper end, <clears throat> you have the delightful place in Nottingham with no hot water and the unmistakable smell of armpit at two locations on the coverlet. And you leave the windows open and you condemn yourself to hypothermia and sleeping with all your clothes on. Close it and you wander all night. What has died? <laughs> and where exactly is the body? And oddly, this was very like another place that I stayed in Sligo and every other place where the event organiser cheerfully yells that they haven't quite had time to check all the accommodation but they're sure it will be fine as they run away from you, always leaving you on the doorstep of a large, middle-aged woman wearing stained and dangerously tight leggings, <laughs> who serves you pale green meat products in the morning and does not ever speak. And then there was a place in the borders with a one-eyed dog where I was welcomed back from my workshop by the spectacle of Mrs. Owner singing country and western in the icy lounge bar accompanied by what appeared to be a corpse on the Hammond organ. <laughs> and watched fondly by Mr. Owner while three grim regulars sat in a line and stared at the opposite wall. Watch out also for Eastern European government boarding houses where the shower may well be in the communal kitchen. <laughs> Estonia, ah. The bed may be three feet long while the sheets and blankets will be two and a half feet long. And in corridors, you may happen upon vast, silent, and almost completely naked people whom you do not know, <laughs> for reasons you do not fully understand. <laughs> At the other end of the spectrum, there are, of course, the lovely hotels, where lovely festivals put you, and the lovely staff look askance at you and your dog-eared luggage and your dog-eared self. And you huddle in the centre of the large, well-appointed, lovely room, wondering what you can touch and that you won't have to pay for later especially lovely hotels, will always want to turn your bed down when you're already in it <laughs> with terminal jet lag. And the staff will always want to know that you are happy and being completely satisfied, which, given your detailed knowledge of the whole of the rest of your life, makes you want to cry. <laughs> but once in a lifetime, you will also get the perfect hotel which has already happened to me. The perfect hotel, the one which will never come again. My perfect hotel was in New York. Might as well be Venice, could be anywhere. It happened to be New York. Uh, it started the day in Boston Airport, waiting for a plane which never left because of fog, which wasn't there. <laughs> then I spent many more hours on a train from Boston, which was delayed, perhaps by the fog, which wasn't there, because it's the most unpredictable type of fog. Then I waited for many hours in New York, weeping openly in a long and potentially violent queue for a cab that would take me to a hotel. At that point, any hotel, even a Nottingham-type hotel, would have done. But this was not any hotel. It was a wonderful hotel. It was the perfect hotel. And a friend of mine had called them up and lied and said I was a famous European writer. <laughs> and they should take good care of me, because then I might write about them. And they had believed him. <laughs> and so the receptionist grinned at me dementedly as I signed in and then the porter carried both me and my bags <laughs> into the lift and put us down gently in the suite and there was a Fabergé egg and it was lined with fur and 
It was wonderful. It was a sweet, whole sweet, perfect sweet, with a perfect bed, large and firm and silky and friendly, and a bathroom you could camp in with many, many, many sewing kits and <laughs> lotions and potions and comfy towels and slippers and a kitchen with nibbles, wonderfully expensive, impossible nibbles in Viennese glass jars, and it even smelt good, and if it hadn't been too big to fit, I would have gone with it and got a room with it in a hotel and done things with it. It was so good. And I had exactly 12 minutes to spend in it <laughs> before I had to be changed and out and ready to give a reading, before going back to it and going straight to sleep because I would have to get up at 4 a.m. the following morning to go to Seattle. Because that's the way it is. But, you know, I have to say at this point that I am not ungrateful because every book I sell means that I am further from the slush pile and I have no skills or employment prospects out with typing. <laughs> so this is a great opportunity for somebody like me. And 10 or 20 years ago, I didn't even dream of being able to do this kind of thing, partly because I'm not a psychopathic or just completely irredeemably sadomasochistic. But it does seem genuinely astonishing. It always will that anyone anywhere would read me or turn out to listen to me, really. The part that you as an audience may not understand is that the reading or the signing or the meet the author session is only the teeny weeny tip of the big, horrible, satanic iceberg. Of course, the author has spent years honing his or her craft and polishing the work that he or she presents, but beyond that, you have no idea of the physical and psychological processes that have combined to bring the author before you. Now, you will have worked out that the writer you see in front of you, not necessarily me, you may be somewhat sensitized by the time you meet them, should you be going to lots of events. You know, they'll have had a plane every day or a train every day and a number of strangers making strange requests every day and these will have taken their toll. They may be perilously close to whatever their personal edge might be. I know, for example, that I have given a reading while woozy with exhaustion because television people demanded that I spend the small hours at the start of that day being filmed inside a butterfly house in Munich before it opened, because my work has so much to do with flying insects. <laughs> and it, it was interesting, and it was nice that the interviewer had a phobia of flying insects. <laughs> and kept squealing, shouting questions, and running away. But everything just got all mixed up with the sleep-deprived hallucinations that I was having anyway. And almost anyone you see reading will have participated in similar insanities, and of course they will have spent a good few lifetimes having their photograph taken. Now, now this is fine for a while, should you like having your photograph taken? If any of you do. Yeah, nobody does. And, you know, if you're not certain that you look like a circus donkey in a hat, you know, that would help. Obviously, I am. But still, certain factors will render things unpleasant. And these will be provided by the photographers who arrive, because they will need to take your picture in the special light that only appears before dawn, or before you catch your plane, or just in the little space that you had, or eaten something. Or they will need to take your picture just before the reading when you might want to concentrate. Or maybe the best one, when you are already out on stage so that the whole audience can assume that you think an awful lot of yourself, <laughs> even if you don't. 
Even if the more they snap, the more you know your face is freezing into a hideous slack-lidded mask and you have the overlong yellowed teeth of an unhealthy horse. <laughs> I'm not getting them fixed now. I'm used to them. Plus, if you've ever had halfway bearable pictures taken which involved makeup and getting your hair done, wasn't my idea it was the Glasgow Herald, I can only say in my defence that it was much less bother than the usual and didn't involve crouching in sleet or lurking beside windswept lakes or standing in a bin cupboard in a dodgy housing estate at night or any of the other wonderful ideas that photographers have had. Anyway, should you have half-decent pictures, then the photographers will always have seen those half-decent pictures and will always be certain that if you could just relax a bit and let your hair down, you could reproduce the two hours of expert restoration, lacquering, stapling and reupholstery that produced the first set of halfway decent photographs, which you now regret so deeply. You can argue all you like, they won't believe you. Now I have no hair, so they can't do it. Ha! <laughs> you can point out that you are tired and already look like a panda. A dead panda. You can say that any other intervention will make you look like a dead panda that has fallen out of a tree. They won't listen until you do let your hair down or just relax a bit and then all of their interest suddenly dwindles away in a manner you could find depressing. So, hence the new haircut. <laughs> Similar things may also happen as you work your way through the tour and come into contact with television studios. Now, you want to be involved with television. Of course, kind of. You want book-buying viewers to know that they can buy your book. You want to appear cooperative and willing, but things will never go well. My first dealings with German television were also my last dealings with German television. F I would guess for entirely aesthetic reasons. The makeup lady, like all makeup ladies everywhere, had decided she could make something of me. <laughs> And this had already involved layering me with plaster of Paris and caking my eyelashes with widening, thickening, lengthening, pacifying goo until I couldn't see. And then she started on my hair, which was longer then, which she wanted to be big. It isn't big. It was never big. Even when it was long, it was not big. It can be short, long, intermediate, but it always remains fine, slippery, unimpressive, and essentially small. If you try to back comb it up into bigness, you will not succeed. But you will force me to tiptoe blinking painfully into a television studio with a trichological nightmare collapsing down on top of me with each step. <laughs> By the time I got as far as the studio and was wired up to listen to the translator who didn't help and the interviewer who was somewhere else, one of my eyes had sealed half shut. <laughs> so that I was squinting and almost blind, and I couldn't move my head at all for fear of more of the trichological collapsing, and I was aware that I very closely resembled a maddened bag lady. <laughs> by the end of the interview, I was mercifully almost entirely obscured by hair. Some people may have bought the book out of sympathy, but I, I rather doubt it. point I'm trying to make is the author you look at on stage, who may appear sane and healthy, may actually be undergoing multiple humiliations designed to deconstruct his or her entire personality. If they didn't already know they were ugly, hours of prodding and teasing will have convinced them. <laughs> they will be vaguely aware that they are sluggish and stupefied with tiredness when they ought to seem wise, or at least coherent, like an author should, 
if they are anything like me, they will find that four or five days of signing, and I don't ever have to sign that much. <laughs> signing. Four or five days of signing will mean that they lose their ability to reproduce their own signature. My signature is a dreadful scroll anyway, but trust me, it is truly alarming when all you can produce is a completely unfamiliar dreadful scroll. And you can't explain this to the well-meaning stranger in front of you because they might become alarmed if you begin rocking and moaning and wondering if you'll ever be able to write a check again. <laughs> the effect of losing yourself completely is polished off neatly by any interviews you may give where journalists will tell you things you haven't done and thoughts you haven't thunked, while you try to explain things you have done and thoughts you have thunked. But you will find these unconvincing because you've already told them to people five times that morning and frankly you wish you had the energy to invent a whole other life involving a childhood spent performing in Romanian freak shows and a talent for motorcycle repair or dancing in a cage in Saigon, just anything that you might believe. But once again, there's almost never anyone about whom you can voice your fears to, and the journalists will only note your wild eyes and evasions and draw whatever conclusions they like. And please believe me, I realize that writing is not the worst job I could have. I would want to emphasize that it's not as bad as uranium mining or being a proctologist or working with mechanically recovered meat or any of the other jobs that I can't do. I'm just pointing out that it is a bit of a pain sometimes now and then. And if you're me, once your personality has come loose and wandered off without you, and your baggage is somewhere in the vicinity of Budapest, you will learn that your new self is worrying, criminal, possibly even dangerous. Where do you learn this? Why in airports, of course. For example, when you hear the words random search, you would assume this meant there would be searches and that they would involve random people. You would be wrong, because they only involve me. <laughs> right next to anybody with a Muslim surname, there I am, being searched unrandomly. So I'm in a bad mood already by the time I get to the people who search you and maybe the wand lady come across a wand lady. I, I, I met one in Portland, Oregon. And the wand lady turns up uh, in Portland, Oregon after you've been through two metal detectors. And I'd had my bag x-rayed randomly by the special extra powerful x-ray machine that melts the rubber in all of your shoes and exposes your film and makes your camera burst into flames. And there she is with her wand. And she very politely says, may I wand you? <laughs> and what do you say? I don't know, probably no isn't an option because terrible things would happen, so you say yes, yes. But that isn't enough. She has to say, may I wand your shoulders? Yeah. May I wand your back? May I wand your waist? Turn around, please. May I wand your stomach? May I wand your thighs? Which is just after a while it feels personal. Weird. And you have to go with it or you could be arrested. And the orange jumpsuit thing would happen. So, you know, by the time you've gone through it all, you feel sullied and confused. And then, you know, I trot on and I can see the gate and I can see the random search table at the gate and I can see the people working at the random search table and they can see me. We could wave if we knew each other. 
and they can see that I haven't been given a Kalashnikov to slip into my pocket or even one of those fatal pairs of eyebrow tweezers that you can't take anywhere anymore because you could take over the free world with a pair of eyebrow tweezers <laughs> correctly applied. And they can see that I haven't talked to anybody apart from the one lady and I haven't touched anybody at all, even the one lady, although for a while I did slightly want to punch her. <laughs> so when I get to the gate, which takes me maybe one minute, Imagine my surprise when the man at the random search table says, would you mind if we submit you to a random search? And there's no answer, because if you don't say yes, then you won't get on the plane. But the man can see that I am not happy, and, and I, I explain, you could, you could see me walking, and, and, I was, and I could see, and nobody, and there's no point, so he hands you over to the woman who does the searches of the women and she's uncomfortable because I'm not happy and she doesn't really search me properly. She just skims. I'm very used to being searched. I know when I'm being searched properly. <laughs> she's sort of nervously patting at me without enthusiasm or commitment. <laughs> and then I get worried because if all of the searches are like all you have to do is be annoyed then nobody would get searched properly and nobody's safe. And I want to say to her, if you don't do it properly, I mean, I could, I, and I almost say, I could be carrying anything onto this, but then I don't say that. <laughs> I just get on board, and I'm very quiet. And of course, even when <clears throat> you've had your shoes off and on three times and everything electrical turned on and then turned off and put back and your PC is in your hands and everything else is turned inside out, <clears throat> even then you never know what will happen. For various complicated reasons, one spring, I had to fly to Montreal from New York, do a reading, fly back to New York, do two readings in one day, get no sleep, and then fly back at dawn to Montreal and do a reading. I don't quite know why. First mistake I made after all that, I tell the cab driver when I'm in New York to take me to Newark Airport instead of LaGuardia Airport, because I was tired. But that's sort of an hour and a half amount of mistake if the traffic is good. And I realized that I was wrong, but I realized it when I passed the prison that's just outside Newark. And then the cab driver thinks that I was going to blame him, and it was my fault, and I said it was my fault, and he thought that I didn't have enough money to pay him, and I was waving a big lump of money in my hand. Very rare that I have a lump of money in my hand, but I did. And I was, no, I will pay you the ludicrous amount of money that it will take you to drive me back. And then we have to rush across the whole of Manhattan. Fortunately, it was still very early on Sunday, practically still Saturday night, and we're going across Manhattan and it's quiet. And, you know, I'd planned to arrive early and be leisurely and have breakfast in the airport and be mellow, but that isn't going to happen now that I've finally arrived. So I just run from queue to queue and search to search and the shoes on and the shoes off and everything turn on and off and, and then I just run past a stall and I think I have to have something to eat because my blood sugar has disappeared and I just shout, bread! <laughs> and they throw something in a bag and I throw them five dollars. I just made of money. And um, <clears throat> I run with everything I have left with my shoes in my hand to be ready and I go to the random search table at the gate and I'm willing and cooperative and happy and friendly and the searching lady is nice and she makes kind inquiries about my orthopedic pillow which is almost all I have in my bag. Uh, it's very heavy, which is unfortunate in an orthopedic pillow. Um, it's very good for your back, but not, not if you carry it anyway. Uh, 
There we go. And uh, I get on the plane. I get on the plane, and that's fine. And the other passengers get on the plane, and, and there are the three people with a tan and, and beards who are wearing badges that say that they remember the sad events of September the 11th, and they're looking very depressed and uh, very much as if they want to be thought of as being good people. And uh, then we all sit down, and we wait. And we wait a long time. We wait a really long time. Um, but while we're waiting, I think I can, I can have my breakfast. Something good will come out of the day. I have a little bag with my food in. I can relax. I can be civilized. And I reach into the little paper bag that I've had uh, through the searching. And um, I have a bagel in my little bag. And I have some butter. It's very nice. And I have some peanut butter, because it's America. Two types of butter. Wouldn't get that in Scotland. And, uh, and I have a knife. <laughs> I'm on a plane and I have a knife. <laughs> and there is no good way to say when you're on a plane, I, I have a knife. <laughs> it's not going to sound surprised or happy or culinary or anything that won't mean an air marshal tasers you in the eye. I have a knife. They gave me a knife. Nobody found my knife. <laughs> I did. I didn't know. I have, and it's very small, and it's not harmful. But pe you know, people get very upset about knives, and they're not allowed. And at this point, some more people with tans and beards come on, and um, they're not wearing badges that say they regret anything. So obviously, this is based on whether you wear a badge or or not. And um, they are ruffled. You can tell that they've been searched really, 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 very thoroughly, and and personally, and 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 I have a knife. <laughs> which I then have to hide for the duration of the flight and smuggle off the plane. <laughs> which actually took my mind off my fear of flying. So by the time the average writer gets to their hotel, should that exist, he or she is vulnerable, may or may not be quite sure of who he or she is, and may feel obscurely or even very openly criminal. And I would just point out that this is why, in some cases, we writers don't come across as being all that normal. There is such thing as artistic temperament. Yes, creative people can be odd. Yes, we spend the rest of our time being a bit by ourselves. But if you did what we do on tour, you'd be odd. And that's without drinking drugs and rock and roll, <laughs> which in my case don't come into it anyway. I'm barely functional as it is without getting involved in loud music and things. You know, I'd, everything about us doesn't work. Our relationships are, are peculiar. You try to get involved with people, and if you're in Germany, he's in New York, and then if you're in London, he's in London, but you have an intersecting window of 24 minutes, and you have a book to write, and it takes time, and you have to do it alone. You can't be in any other condition, and, and beyond that, we're not good at people that we haven't made up earlier. So, you know, you can understand that we have moments of weakness and when you're in a big festival hotel, nowhere as respectable as Edinburgh, but in Canada or maybe in America or Australia and the places full of writers and writing type people and you know it's all going to go wrong. People will be doing things they, should, they shouldn't do with themselves. They will be doing things they shouldn't do with other people that they may not know or may not want to know afterwards, or they won't want to talk to ever again. And no one will remember who they are in the first place, and it will all be ugly, and it will also be all the fun we're going to get. It will be most of the people, albeit demented strangers, that we meet in any given year. 
we might even make pals if it weren't that all the pals we might end up with will turn out to live on the other side of the world or be using assumed identities. It's, it's best to keep clear. Because even if it's nice and the people running the festival give you fresh fruit at all hours or free passes to go whale watching, special pens, little bags, t-shirts, coach trips to sites of natural interest, it's still dreadful because your life isn't like this. This is a glorified school trip full of emotional cripples. <laughs> this is actually worse than your life, or at least equally unpleasant. Even when you can actually face the full hotel experience, big room service bill, lots of nibbles flirting in the bar, smiling, going upstairs, four little feet. Even then, it is a mistake. I would point out this is not an area in which I specialize before you get all upset with me. I am generally in my hotel room watching the Discovery Channel eating Pringles and crying. <laughs> but I am only flesh and blood and occasionally I weaken and I can only say that gentlemen sometimes promise things that they don't necessarily come up with. <laughs> Nights of mind-altering pleasure and passion may be mentioned and Sometimes they don't appear. But even worse, sometimes they do. <laughs> no, I, I, I wouldn't want to upset you. I'll do this bit very, very quickly. But I have to say, five hours of continuous orgasms, you suddenly realize, is actually two hours too long. <laughs> no? I'm very upset to have to say that. I would have wanted it to not be, but actually three hours is fine. Three, more than adequate three hours. Gentlemen among you can find this threatening or reassuring, d depending <laughs> how you're placed. I mean, on a good day, I, I could put up with an hour, really. 20 minutes. Five. Particularly when I've decided, as in that case, that I'm, I'm undoubtedly hallucinating and nothing I think is happening really is happening because it's probably just ridiculously nice. Nothing like this could happen when you're awake. And that depresses you because it is real and you should be having fun, but you're not. <laughs> you're kind of alienated in a weird Brechtian way and quite tired. <laughs> so I just thought I'd mention that and now we need never talk of it again. We'll just talk about being ill, because with so much stress and weird food or no food and pressure, you are going to be ill. Jet lag, of course, will make you feel as if you are ill in a terminal way. It's a lovely sort of combination, many of you will probably know, of flu, depression, paranoia, and constipation. <laughs> but once it's worn off, you can cultivate a real frightening, possibly tropical disease. I will point out that I've had food poisoning in Britain far more often than I've had food poisoning anywhere else in the world, and I have gone all the way across Jordan and Egypt and lots of hot places, but I have to say that Egypt did defeat me. Uh, sorry, India defeated me. Uh, and I ended up lying, lying on the bathroom floor in New Delhi while very bad things happened everywhere. <laughs> and I couldn't leave for luck now. Everybody else went and left me in my EM Foster-type room watching occasional fragments of black and white films on the television, which might have been turned on. Uh, it, it was not good. Uh, and, and it was sort of ironic because I'd been avoiding um, the cultural outings which the British Council arranged in India, which involved going to British churches and um, 
British houses and British-style graveyards and British-style cultural events, in case you suddenly are confronted with India, which would have been why you went. Um, so I'd been feigning illness quite a lot, but suddenly I was fantastically ill. Um, I got better just in time to, to, to go and have some more dinners. They're very good at arranging dinners um, late at night next to large open bodies of water. So malaria-bearing insects the size of thrushes. <laughs> Zip past either ear. As, as you remember, that the malaria medication can make you blind or mad and doesn't protect you from all the nastiest types of malaria, but you're taking it anyway. <laughs> uh, but I did, I did get the one, the one very nice thing out of, out of visiting India. I, I didn't get enlightenment or anything. Um, I did find out that the Hanuman, uh, the monkey god, also has special responsibility for novelists. <laughs> novelists and monkeys. Uh, <laughs> makes sense. Um, but I, you know, I was reminded again that in, in, in poor countries or amongst people that don't have very much, you, you always end up being given huge amounts of presents and niceness and hugs, which you never get in places where everybody has stuff. And they could give you stuff. Yeah, I'd get a CD player or a television <laughs> out of a nice first world country. But no. Um, you know, when I was in Russia, in India, in Jordan, in Palestine, in Egypt, presence, generosity, niceness, um, any kind of country where there's a, a lack of access to education, where there's a lack of access to books, there are readers and readers and readers and writers and writers and people who love books and have risked everything from books and will go without food to have books or to make books. And, you know, I realize that I don't know I'm born, which is handy sometimes. So, meanwhile, Never mind the getting there and the going back and the evenings. The readings. What about the actual readings within which we are? The opportunities for the author to reach out to the reader, to make contact. They're now all called Meet the Author, which is frankly terrifying. Well, I would find it terrifying, but I, that's because I would have to meet me and I didn't. No. <laughs> But it's great, you know, it is desperately important for the author to hear the voice that they see on the page and they imagine inside their head. It's lovely. And it's the only time we can think, oh, God, there's somebody else there, even if you're all just here because the weather went a bit pear-shaped <laughs> and you couldn't get into the concert you wanted. Ah, and it's great, you know, when it reinforces everything and it's very positive, but when it goes wrong, it's quite difficult to describe how wrong it can be. You know, bad reviews can be painful, struggling with an unwilling sentence can be, you know, uncomfortable, especially if the sentence wins. And there always will be people who make the effort to come up to you in shops or in the street or when you're having coffee with a pal and they want to tell you how very much they didn't like your writing. <laughs> and they have a right to do that and even to go into considerable detail about the specific things that they loathe throughout your work. But, you know, there is nothing quite like standing in a room full of people who are clearly not enjoying any of the noises coming out of your head. <laughs> and at that point in the proceedings, all of the words that you have carefully polished late into the night at the cost of your social life and mental health will have been converted into nothing more than noises coming out of your head like cowpats dropping out of a cow. <laughs> but that's not the half of it. Even getting on stage, whatever the stage happens to be, is fraught with danger. First, you have to weather your introduction, which is very nice this time, but sometimes, you know, I mean, there's the overly excellent type of introduction, which 
gives you this misleading list of virtues that have never been visible and, and makes you feel as if, um, in the first place, you've wandered into your own funeral. <laughs> and in the second place, makes it inevitable that you will be a horrible disappointment. Quirky introductions, they're a bit risky as well, um, describing the author as being like salty porridge, indigestible but possibly worth the distasteful effort. Yeah. It's Manchester. <laughs> Not necessarily the best start to an evening. Or the in-depth analysis of why a writer using initials must in fact be two different people followed by complex ruminations about which of the two people has turned up at that particular event. Just leading the, afore <clears throat> leading the aforementioned author to have yet another identity crisis as they sit and wonder if they can leave. Beyond this point, costs over to the author, so any hopes of success must be definitively abandoned. So far, I have managed to fall over on my way to the stage, which is, is, is good, gets you sympathy, actually. I've poured water over the manuscript I to read. I have poured water over me. I have cut my finger, forgotten about it, and realized way too late that I was speaking to an audience of school children while significantly covered in my own blood. <laughs> they, they were very attentive. Uh, <laughs> And I've suffered the usual anxiety dreams that revolve around turning up without a book or trying to turn up and for occult reasons you can't get into the room. But I can recommend for, you know, the real cardiac infarction, not in a dream, you want to stand up and be reading from loose pages while you have flu and find as you read that the next page you are moving on to is not there. And what's more, you're so ill that you cannot adequately describe how splendid and lovely and consecutive the next page would have been. <laughs> and then there are evenings when your sinuses are so congested you would be inaudible even if you swallowed the microphone, or when your teeth don't cooperate, or when one of your fillings has fallen out and you're whistling through a frontal fang. <laughs> Or you unwisely read a section that someone has requested because they like it ever so much and you've mostly forgotten it and then you're horrified to discover how really terribly, terribly dreadful it is. <laughs> this situation is only worsened by accidentally reading a bad review of the book you are promoting while you linger in the green room before you go on and the rest of the evening will then simply be a reinforcement of your already complex issues of self-esteem. I can also recommend giving a reading after the screening of a film you have written, a film that causes most of the audience to cry, and once they know you're the author, to say things like, why did you do that? <laughs> Not a very good atmosphere. And meanwhile, Turing continues along with the peculiar education that it provides. For example, I have learned that I will always love being in Russia, because in Russia I am not anxious. Everyone around me expects to die at any minute. <laughs> Everyone else is late and hampered and nothing is expected to work properly and no one is surprised when some technical difficulty assails you and none of it is my fault. It's just life. And you can get a fantastic cup of tea at any time, even in the middle of the night, even on a train. It's great. I have learned that the music you will be most likely to hear in the Middle East will be ABBA compilation tapes warped until they sound as if they've been played underwater. 
Um, Arab, Arab countries are also very good in the provision of tea and the type of coffee that reconfigures your frontal lobes and <laughs> sent me running up Mount Sinai on two hours sleep without feeling a thing. I've learned that strangers in Canada will happily spend hours describing the weight of material in kilts, even after you've made it very firmly clear that you don't care. <laughs> I've learned that in the United States I have a thick Glaswegian accent and an Irish brogue, possibly simultaneously. I've learned that a, place, a pair of slippers carried from place to place can save what is left of your soul by providing a tiny, pathetic sliver of familiarity every time you put down your little pathetic hooves. I have learned that ordering the cheese platter option from room service is never wise. And above all, I have learned that should I ever believe I am capable or a creature of dignity or a professional occasionally deserving of respect or somebody who writes in The Guardian and knows a thing or two, I am always absolutely fundamentally mistaken. If I were not, I would never have found myself laughing with hysterical despair while sitting on a rubber mattress in the Northern Lodge Motel, for a better tomorrow spend the night at the Northern Lodge Motel in Tasmania. The better tomorrow did not include running water but did suggest that two slices of bread would arrive and that you could convert them into toast at your leisure, presumably using your own body heat. <laughs> or the kettle, because that certainly didn't boil water. I would not have continued to laugh as I staggered along a grey beach and stared at the flapping leg of a dead seagull in the company of other mangled authors, all of them caught fast in the dreadful machinery of a tour of Tasmania. I would not have heard an award-winning English poet scream like a girl as we careened from lane to lane along a dark Tasmanian highway, driven by a diminutive and visually impaired poetess who sung, waved her arms, ignored roadsides, and talked about acid flashbacks as we hurtled towards our almost certain death <laughs> on a road already lined with regular, large, humped remains of blood-spattered dead things. <laughs> I would not have been comforted in Sydney by the assertion that the axe murderer stalking the streets and axe murdering with enthusiasm wasn't the real axe murderer, but only a copycat. <laughs> and I would not have ended up in Neumünster. Do we have anybody in from Neumünster? Oh. See, Neumünster, Neumünster was a sort of new, it was an event horizon, one I had not crossed before. I was in tour, on tour in Germany again, and I had forgotten how to sign my name again, and I was staggering with tiredness again, but still battering on again, because the average German audience is a very fine thing, fun to be with, like yourselves. Naturally, the time I would have spent eating my dinner turned out to be time I was going to spend eating my dinner and giving an interview and having my pitch taken, slathering with gravy and mad-eyed. But at least I got dinner, and then the reading went forward, and my German translator read with me, and he's a very fine gentleman, and questions were asked, and books were signed, and everything was finished. And then I slowly crossed the darkened car park, heading for whatever hotel might have been provided, and whatever bed I might be able to drop into, and I fell over. There was not even any reason for it. No excuse. I just lost the ability to stand up. I embedded gravel in my palms, which is very good if you have to carry luggage for another week and a half. 
and I apparently bruised my knees, I couldn't tell, and I was, of course, waving away all assistance and saying, no, no, I'm fine, and hoping we could all just forget in a very British way, until I made my way back to the hotel, a nice hotel, clean hotel, hotel fitted out entirely in cream and white. I arrived at my room, I washed my hands, picked the larger chunks of road out of them, and then I considered my knees. I took off my jeans, which were muddy, but absolutely unscathed. Mysteriously, my knees were not muddy, but were bleeding profusely. And I washed them and hoped they would congeal. And I brushed my teeth and, and hoped that while I was doing that, my knees would congeal. And I stayed in the bathroom to save the white carpet, and, and, and I hoped that my knees would congeal. <laughs> and I looked at the glimmering white bed in which I couldn't lie. And I hoped that my knees would congeal, and they didn't, for hours. So I sat beyond weariness far away from home, watching my own kneecaps, wondering why I was a novelist, and wondering when someone would next come up and ask, are you that entertaining in everyday life? To which the answer is no! Or isn't it tiring being funny all the time? To which the answer is what? Not that you ever say that, because that would be depressing and self-pitying, and that's not what people want. So, um, yes, that's nearly the end. I don't want to finish on a low note, because there are very nice pleasures in touring, and kindnesses, and acts of generosity, and sandwiches, and gifts, and pats on the head, and people in Montreal who speak to me as if I'm a small, idiot, French-speaking child, <laughs> because of the large furry hat with ear flaps that I wear. Shout loudly, say they, Tu es perdu? Oui! N'importe! Complètement perdu! Toute ma vie! There we go. And you know, there's little acts of generosity, and it just, you know, it lights up your day. But. Even the nasty things that happen and they strip away your meaning and your sense of identity, even those are useful. Because eventually you do find there's, there, there is a reason, you know, there is a reason, there is a very nice and deep and splendid reason for being here and for touring because whenever you read and you travel to meet an audience, as I've said, you know, you're standing up, possibly you'd rather be asleep, mainly you might be thinking of a bacon sandwich, which you won't get. And once the reading starts, all of that falls away, and you're one human being saying something to other human beings. And even one other human being would be enough, because this is where we understand what we are. You know, instead of being these little tiny bags of skin, all isolated from each other in a huge and unsympathetic and impossibly large and threatening universe, we're people talking to each other which is basically all I ever do. It's just I normally write it down and because I can't be here all the time, <laughs> because that would be frightening. <laughs> but it's the same thing. It's just it's the one occasion when we get to actually see the eyes and teeth of the people to whom we are speaking. You know, it's just this little tiny attempt to reach out and say something. Suddenly you're in a room full of strangers you know, I'm, I'm partly here because I used to have a chum I used to say things to, and, and now I can't anymore. And I miss my chum. So I end up in rooms full of strangers saying things to them. 
which is mad, but stops me going mad. Um, you know, it's one of those little moments where human beings do nice things, which I think is good for us, because we do a lot of very unpleasant things too, and I think it helps our self-esteem if we just spend about an hour being civilized, saying things to each other, like polite, civilized, nice human beings. So there you go. Um, I will try and produce my signature in the other place, because this is all a dreadful, cheap manipulation to make you buy books. <laughs> uh, actually, I don't care at all. Uh, I'm just here. No, uh, it's very nice to be here. Um, I hate being Edinburgh. It has all kinds of associations that I can't stand at the moment. <laughs> but it's very nice being in this tent, because this could be anywhere. I may squeal when I have to go out there again. Uh, but no, uh, you know, thank you for um, keeping me sane for an hour. It's very nice. Very nice to see you. Um, hope you enjoy the other events that you go to, and that you have very nice lives. Good evening. supremely talented, Alison Kennedy. Um, she will be signing. Please don't feel sorry for her. Please come. Um, when you go out, the signing tent is on your left, round here, and she will be in the table nearest to us. So please come and, uh, and have, have test her signature. And again, Alison, thank you so much. What a fantastic hour. Absolutely superb. <laughs>